Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 4th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including Game of Thrones Season 8 and Rick and Morty Season 4. We'll have the WGA nominees, and Warner Brothers hires a uh, new DC Movies president, and Wonder Woman 2 will be totally different than the first film. We'll find out why. Uh, and in our feature presentation, Ethan Anderton's top 10 movies of 2017. Joining me on today's podcast is uh, Slash Film senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Slash Film weekend editor, Brad Oman, who you know is Ethan Anderton on site. Hey, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Brad, uh, I mean, Ben and I have talked uh, on the podcast since New Year's, but we haven't talked to you. What, what were you up to on New Year's? Maxin and relaxin, my friend. Uh, I have never enjoyed not having to do something so much. <laughs> um, as I talked about before, I'm done with student teaching, and so it's just been nice to be able to relax. There wasn't much relaxing that happened in like the five days between when I stopped student teaching and Christmas because I was rushing to get all my last-minute Christmas things done. But the week between... Christmas and New Year's was just a really nice way for me to relax, catch up on movies. Uh, you know, for New Year's, I went to a, a friend's place um, and we had like a just like a game night with, you know, a few people. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just been nice to be able to chill and enjoy myself and kind of get back in the, the normal swing of things. What movies did you see? Or are we going to uh, be talking about those later? Yeah, some of them we'll be talking about a little bit later. Um, but it's mostly been... Uh, award season catch up and stuff that I had to see <clears throat> in order to uh, better put together my top 10 movies of 2017 list. Well, we won't spoil that. We will get to that later. Let's jump into the news. Uh, we have some news on a bunch of uh, premieres for uh, television premieres. Uh, ben, when is Game of Thrones season eight going to be on HBO? 
So we know right now that the eighth and final season of Game of Thrones is going to be premiering in 2019. So HBO officially sent out a press release that announced this information. They did not release the actual date of when it's going to debut, but we do know now for sure that it's going to be 2019. I think there was maybe some speculation out there that they could possibly finish it you know, sometime this year, but uh, that is not the case. 2019 it is. Um, if you go to SlashFilm.com and read the full article that we've written up, you can find out which directors are going to be involved in the last six episodes. But uh, yeah, this is going to be the shortest season yet, but also the most expensive because every episode is going to cost $15 million. And the press release did not mention whether each episode is going to be feature length, which is something that we'd heard rumors about before. So we'll have to uh, keep our ears open and uh, see if we hear anything more about that in the coming days. Is there any surprises in the director department? Uh, there aren't any female directors, which is a little bit of a bummer. But um, but there are a couple people in there. One guy in particular that I'm not going to spoil. I want to want to tease it out and make people go and, and visit the, <laughs> the article and check it out. But there's one person in there who I think uh, fans of the big um, battle episodes are going to be very pleased with uh, at least one name on this list. We'll put it that way. Okay, cool. And uh, Brad, you are a big fan of Rick and Morty. Turns out that season four is not going to arrive this year. What do we know? Yeah, it turns out much like Game of Thrones, we might be waiting for a new season of Rick and Morty until 2019. Um, Ryan Ridley is one of the series writers, and he recently appeared on the Detroit cast, um, which is a podcast. And he was talking about the show's production process. And while he was lamenting how long it takes to finish a season... Uh, he was talking about how he anticipates that they probably won't get a fourth season on the air any sooner than 2019. I mean, he was even saying maybe late 2019. So, And even though that's frustrating, that kind of fits with the timetable as far as how long it took them to complete season three after season two ended. Because uh, the second season ended in October of 2015 and the third season didn't uh, return in full until July of 2017. So since the third season ended this past October at the very beginning, it would make sense that we wouldn't see it for <clears throat> roughly a couple of years. Now, there's a chance because Dan Harmon has come out and said uh, why this season took so long for them to get finished. And a lot of it was because him and Justin Roiland couldn't get their shit together and had trouble in development trying to figure out where to go and what to do. And the writing process took longer than they had anticipated. Um, earlier uh, this or last year, when the third season was coming to an end, he was talking about how he wanted to do more episodes and that hopefully he had learned enough lessons from this past season to be a little bit more efficient this time. So hopefully maybe they've figured out how to be a little bit more uh, active when it comes to getting the season written so that they can get it finished sooner and we won't be waiting as long, but I won't hold my breath. And, uh, you know, it is uh, the end of the year. It is award season. And the Writers Guild of America have announced their nominations for the 2018 awards. Ben, what do we need to know? Well, a lot of the uh, movies that were nominated for the Writers Guild of America Awards for for excellence in screenplay writing in 2017 are films that you sort of would expect to be on this list. So Call Me By Your Name, Get Out, Lady Bird, movies like that that are great and have been sort of on the award circuit for a while already uh, have definitely popped up here. But also uh, Logan got uh, some awards attention there. It got a nominee. 
or a nomination rather. Um, and that sort of echoes what happened last year when Deadpool received a WGA uh, writing nomination as well. So that's kind of a cool thing. Logan is a great movie, obviously, and uh, I'm glad to see it getting um, recognized by a, a voting body of, of its peers, you know. Um, I'll just run through the nominations really quickly because there are only a few of them. So in the original screenplay category, you've got The Big Sick, which is also a great movie, and I'm really excited to see that one there. Uh, Get Out, I, Tanya, Lady Bird, and The Shape of Water. And then when it comes to uh, the adapted screenplay category, you have Call Me By Your Name, The Disaster Artist, Logan, Molly's Game, and Mudbound. And there are some others that you can read on the site about the the documentary screenplay category if you want. But um, yeah, for me, Logan was a, sort of a big surprise there. Um, and uh, yeah, like I mentioned before, always excited to see the big sick get any sort of uh, acknowledgement at all. Yeah, and the D- WGA award winners are considered a reliable predictor for the Oscars. Um, so uh, when, when we see the results of this, that might help us know who's going to win at the Academy Awards. Uh, but moving on, uh, let's move on to Warner Brothers. They have hired a new DC movies president. Brad, what do we know and what does this mean? Yeah, so uh, as we found out uh, before, there were some shakeups happening at Warner Brothers after Justice League did not uh, perform as well at the box office as it was anticipated and hoped. Uh, John Berg was removed from his position uh, at the head of the comic book movie division at Warner Brothers. And so now Walter Hamada has been hired in his place uh, as the head of DC Movies production division. Um, This hopefully means good news because this is a guy who has had success with franchises at Warner Brothers already. Uh, He's been steering the Conjuring cinematic universe, which, uh, you know, came out from this single horror movie and has expanded to include several franchises now. We have the, the Annabelle franchise. There's a, another spinoff in the works um, called The Nun that will be arriving this year. And that's turned into quite a successful series of horror movies. Um, Hamada has also apparently been working very closely with James Wan. He has a good relationship with him. And as we know, Wan is directing Aquaman that comes out later this year. And apparently, um, Toby Emmerich, who's the president of Warner Brothers and the chief content officer there, was also impressed with how he uh, worked on Shazam with David F. Sandberg leading up to the production that also starts this year and is coming in 2019. So considering his experience with a couple of DC movies so far and his success with franchises at the studio, it seems like this is the right guy to hopefully help steer DC in the right direction. But the question that we all still kind of have is, what does that mean as far as having Hamada team up with Jeff Johns and hopefully course correct the DC Extended Universe. Because uh, as we've seen, they already have an established universe. And is this something that they're going to stick with after you know Justice League underperformed? Or are they going to figure out a way to possibly reboot the DC Comics cinematic universe with Flashpoint? You know, it's, it's hard to tell really what the path is going to be because we've heard of so many different projects in development um, some being these standalone spin-off movies, some being, you know, expanding the DCEU. So, you know, time will really tell as to what the overarching plans are that Warner Brothers has at DC. So hopefully Walter Hamada has some kind of good idea of what to do in order to help get that uh, division of Warner Brothers back on track. And speaking of the future of the DCEU, uh, Patty Jenkins is doing some interviews and she uh, basically said that Wonder Woman 2 is going to be totally different from the first film. Ben, what do we know? 
at the Palm Springs Film Festival, uh, Patty Jenkins was speaking with Entertainment Tonight, and she was asked about Wonder Woman 2, and her quote was, we're actually making a totally different film with a lot of the same similar-like things that we love, but it's its own movie completely, so it's not two to us, T-W-O. It's an entirely new adventure together that we couldn't be luckier to do. Uh, that is, as Chris wrote in his uh, in his write-up here, maddeningly vague. So that could <laughs> literally mean just about anything. But uh, as he points out in his article, it does you know bode well that Jenkins is not uh, content to essentially just remake the first Wonder Woman. Um, you know, a lot of times sequels sort of fall into that trap where it's like, oh, people like this, let's just give them almost the exact same thing, but just with like a slightly different twist to it. But her saying that uh, this is going to be a quote, totally different film definitely seems like um, they're going to be moving off of, you know, and away from uh, the, the established template from the first movie. So, uh, I mean, I really like the first movie. I'm excited to see what what she does with it. Um, it's still too early to know exactly <laughs> what that's going to be. But uh, I, I think, as Chris mentions here as well, there, there have been rumors that the movie might take place in the 1980s. But there have also been some rumors that it could be set in present day. So, Whatever they do. And there's also rumors that Chris Pine might come back. And, you know, with Justice League sort of fitting into the timeline where it does and the way that uh, that Wonder Woman reacted to um, Batman and the, their interaction there and, and referencing Chris Pine's character, uh, the way that she does in that movie, it's going to be really interesting to see if he actually does come back in some capacity for Wonder Woman 2. So yeah, there's still a lot of question marks about this movie, but yeah, it's supposed to be totally different, which is good news, I think. What do you think, Peter? I don't know. Uh, Brad covers the superhero beat with superhero bits on the site. So I'm wondering, Brad, do you have any theories on what Wonder Woman 2 will be? Um... As far you mean as like as far as the plot, or you mean what anything? Point? Yeah, all of the talk from Patty Jenkins and any interviews since the success of Wonder Woman, and as she's been making the rounds for various awards roundtables and special interviews with um, hopeful nominees and everything, has been relatively vague. Um, so there's not really any specific details that hint at what we can expect whatsoever other than what we had already heard, you know, shortly after the movie came out. Um, as for the return of Chris Pine, that, that was a rumor that was like around a while, like a long time before, I think where like, there was rumors about Chris Pine, um, playing like his characters, like great great grandson or something who just ha so happens to look exactly like him um <laughs> hopefully that's not the case because that would be really dumb um you know he could always come back as a force ghost i guess <laughs> do they have force ghosts in the wonder woman uh universe <laughs> they will <laughs> okay I, I i think here is where we, we cut off the news and say goodbye to ben ben thanks for joining us where can we find pe more of your work online no problem. You can find me at SlashFilm.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. And for our feature presentation, we're going to have Ethan Anderton's Top 10 Movies of 2017. And to present those Top 10 Movies, it's not Ethan Anderton, but Brad Oman. This this is very confusing. Uh, but uh, th they are the same person, as you know. Uh, Ethan Anderton is his uh, pseudonym. Uh, his writer pseudonym for the sites. Uh, so, Brad, before we get into your top 10, is there anything you would like to say about the year of 2017 in movies at large? Uh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> when it comes to the 
blockbuster side of things, there were more than a few disappointments. But looking into the more independent side of things and on the Wartston side, there were tons of movies uh, to love, to fall in love with. And narrowing my list down was extremely difficult. Um, once I go through a few of the honorable mentions that I had the hardest time cutting out of the top 10, um, you'll see what I'm talking about. But even then, like um, there are still several movies that I haven't seen that I feel like would have been in contention uh, for being at least being on the list somewhere. But yeah, this was a particularly good year, I think, for movies. And I, I hope that if people haven't seen some of the movies that we've been praising and that are on our uh, year-end lists, I hope that they seek them out and see just how many good movies there really are out there. And before we get into your top 10, uh, let's run down your honorable mentions really quick. So what what movies did not make the top 10, but are things that you want to briefly talk about? Yeah, there were five movies that I wanted to highlight that I specifically had a very difficult time uh, cutting out of the top 10. I kept shifting things around, and once it came down to it, and I was happy with my top 10, these are the movies that ended up outside of the shuffle. So Brad, Um, what what you're saying is we assigned you to make a top 10 list and you gave us a top 10 a top 15 i mean to be fair this is what we did last year and that's what i thought we were doing this year like we had I, I, i'm we just, I'm had just messing with you it's, it's okay i know but i want you to know <laughs> <laughs> um so but yes so the the five movies that just uh barely missed the cut were edgar wright's baby driver uh which i absolutely adored for a number of reasons and it was really upsetting that you know it just didn't quite crack the list uh, I, Tanya, which is one of the movies that I was catching up on here uh, at the end of 2017, which I actually think that I ended up liking this movie a lot more than most people do because the performances have been getting praised left and right. But I think the movie itself deserves just as much praise. Uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, which is an f- amazing conclusion to this prequel franchise. It's definitely franchise filmmaking at its finest. A Ghost Story, which is a movie that I think about you know every so often that i i kind of haven't been able to shake since seeing it at sundance last january because it's just so unique and different um and the scope of it is so ambitious i i, I love it so much um and ladybird which it has been getting praise left and right and is uh, was one of the best reviewed movies last year which i absolutely love but just barely missed making the top 10 um there's so many things to love about it the performances and I'm a sucker for those kinds of coming-of-age movies. So taking that one out of the mix was definitely a, a difficult decision for me to make. So, Brad, you're the one person on the site that didn't have Lady Bird in their top ten. L- let's see what movies were better than Lady Bird. Uh, yeah, no- let's see what movies were better than Lady Bird. <laughs> number ten, Logan. Yeah, so Logan came in at number ten. And in order to effectively talk about what it is about this movie that I love so much, we have to dive into spoiler territory. So if you haven't seen this movie... That came out in March of 2017, and you're still worried about spoilers, just fast forward like a minute or two and avoid it. Because at this point, we're, we're talking about these spoilers because the movie's been out on HBO already for a while. And that's about the time when there's just no whining about spoilers anymore. So you've been warned. I love how you've decided, uh, you singly have decided when spoilers are non, non you know, it, it is over at this point. When it's it, on HBO... It, 
No I mean, if you haven't gone out of your way to see Logan yet, then you don't care enough about the movie to be concerned about spoilers. Okay, go ahead. I think we've given people enough warning. Yeah. All right. So I cried so much during this movie, and I was surprised by that simply because I had already mentally prepared myself for the fact that Wolverine was probably going to die in this movie. It was Hugh Jackman's swan song as the character after playing him for 17 years. He first started playing him in 2000 in the first X-Men movie. And so if he wasn't going to go out in a blaze of glory, then it didn't really seem like there was much point to putting him through all this hell leading up to it. But when the moment finally came that he did die, it was so gut-wrenching and it like tore my heart up. Like I was so surprised at the swell of emotion that all of a sudden like erupted up from my chest and like to my eyes and like I had tears streaming down it. And like it comes like in a one two punch too because he dies, but then they have the funeral for him. And that funeral, when she takes the cross that is on the grave of the duck farm and she turns it over to an X, like I get choked up even now just thinking about it. Um, and but everything leading up to it is perfect too. You know, you, it's this you have this character who you're breaking down the idea of what it is to be a hero and the hell that he's gone through leading up to this point of, you know, losing all of the people that he knew and cared about because of some, you know, accident that happened presumably with Professor X before the movie, you know, even begins. It's just this great deconstruction of what it is to be a hero and what those heroes mean to people. And there's been a few movies examining that this year. Uh, Another one that we'll get to later on my top 10 actually, but this was just such a great movie that doesn't even feel like a superhero movie and i think that it shows the full potential of what comic book movies can be if we don't force them into this box of having to be cookie cutter flashy action blockbusters that are only good for staring at for a couple hours while we toss popcorn into our mouths this was a thoughtful uh powerful piece of filmmaking and like and i just I, i loved every minute of it yeah, I definitely agree. And number nine on your list, uh, you know, we kind of had the debate this past week um, about uh, the disaster artist and Briggs to be Bear. And you were last time we talked to you, you were still kind of chewing on it. You didn't know which of those films you liked more. And now we're finally finding out with your number nine pick, the disaster artist. Yes, uh, this was one of the very difficult decisions that I had going back and forth, trying to place my movies on this list. And honestly, I feel like they could be interchangeable. There was a part of me that almost considered maybe putting them both in the same slot and just calling it a tie, but I didn't want to cheat that much. Um, but yeah, the disaster artist. I mean, was you, just, you, you already gave us to- a 15 in the top 10, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, Peter. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, the disaster artist um, I loved. I also caught uh, late this year, and it's just this great dissection of the american dream and the american dream specifically within the entertainment industry you know i expected this movie after seeing the room to be something that you know was just mocking tommy wiseau and the making of the room and the silliness of this movie even existing and while there is plenty of that to be sure so many of the jokes come at the expense of tommy wiseau as a character and the making of the room as this notoriously bad movie but Deeper than that, there's a more endearing and touching side of this movie that comes from the friendship that exists between uh, Tommy Wiseau and uh, the character Dave Franco plays, who's the star of The Room. And 
their friendship is so genuine and moving that even when they, you know, it comes to a point when they actually are at odds with each other, you, you really feel sorry for them. Like you, we've laughed at them a while while they've been making this bad movie, but you feel bad for them because they did care so much about each other and they put so much of themselves into this project, you know, only to have it laughed at. And you start, you do, you do feel bad for them after you've laughed so much at their expense. And I think that the fact that the movie is able to make something so moving out of, you know, what was basically uh, this this joke of a movie speaks to, you know, how, compli- how complex our feelings can be about cinema and about storytelling and that we can find things that we love even in things that are seemingly bad. And we have to remember, you know, that even these bad movies have probably, you know, created moments in these people's lives that made them that they'll, you know, remember forever. And when it comes to Tommy Wiseau, him making this bad movie has made him more famous than probably making any, you know, average movie would have been, which oh, is kind of an sure. interesting thing, which is interesting to think about. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are probably going to see The Disaster Artist as James Franco, you know, Seth Rogen, uh, Dave Franco. Like, but uh, your number eight pick, which we mentioned just a few minutes ago, Briggs v. Bear, I think a lot of people have not seen. It's not on their radar. Um, why should they see this film? Uh, they should see this film simply because, first of all, it's it's hilarious. But it's also this wonderful movie that is full of passion and really honors the power of storytelling. This played at Sundance in 2017 and it got an unceremonious release on some screens over the summer, but it kind of just got swept under the rug, didn't get much box office action. Um, And there aren't any huge names in this movie to draw attention to it, which is probably part of the problem, but um, it is produced by the lonely Island, which I I don't think a lot of people know about. Yeah, the, uh, for those of you that don't know, The Lonely Island is Andy Samberg, Yorma Taconi, and Akiva Schaefer, who are the faux rap trio are responsible for Saturday Night Live digital shorts, things like Dick in a Box and I'm on a Boat, I Just Had Sex, all, all those things. And they produced this movie, and it's uh, co-written by Kyle Mooney, uh, who also is on SNL right now. And it's just this great movie about a guy who, funnily enough, is stuck on nostalgia for this series that he watched as a kid but the series kind of has some complicated issues as far as its existence because it's tied to something that's a little bit traumatic and i hesitate to give any more details than that simply because this is the kind of movie where it's kind of awesome to watch without really knowing certain details going into it specifically details that happen in the first 10 minutes um, normally we wouldn't consider those spoilers, but in this case, there's something about seeing the movie and not knowing that this detail going in that makes it a little bit more interesting. Would you agree, Peter? Yeah, it's a little bit more heavy, a little bit more dramatic. Um, yeah. Um, and so, but it's this, there's this, there's this great story about just this, this, uh, guy who's in his middle twenties who suddenly has to deal with, uh, this uprooting of his normal life that he's had for so long. And using this television show called Brigsby Bear Adventures that he's fallen in love with to try and cope with it. I think the movie has some very interesting things to say about uh, our nostalgia for things and how we use the things that we love, whether it's, you know, pop culture or anything like that, to cope with the various traumas that we have dealt with in our life. 
and how storytelling can be this kind of gateway to understanding and better dealing with things in our life that maybe we have difficulty understanding or that have, you know, given us grief in the past. And so I think there's just, there's a lot of beautiful things in this movie, um, along with it being seriously, genuinely funny uh, all the way throughout. And it's got a great cast, too. Greg Kinnear is in it. Mark Hamill is in it. Um, and it's, yeah, you'll just, if you seek this out, you won't be disappointed. I almost feel like they should have had this come out after Last Jedi, just to kind of like, um, you know, kind of fly in the coattails of uh, Mark Hamill. I feel like it would have got more press. Um, yeah. But let's go to uh, n- number seven, The Shape of Water. Yes. Guillermo del Toro's latest movie. Um, I'm a sucker for Guillermo del Toro. I was a little disappointed with Crimson Peak, but seeing this movie, I am so glad that he's back, you know, in perfect form. Uh, this very well might be Guillermo del Toro's best movie. That's coming from somebody who oh, loves wow. Devil's Backbone, loves Pan's Labyrinth. Um, but there's something about this movie that kind of combines everything that you know about Guillermo del Toro as far as what he loves and what he tries to emulate in his movies. And I feel like this movie has everything pushed into it. And it comes out not being a mess by any means, but it's this just beautiful love story between this mute woman and a mysterious fish man. And within it, you have, you know, the, his Guillermo del Toro's love for cinema and love for musicals, and love for strange worlds. Like, even though this movie takes place in the 1950s, the style of the sets and the production design and everything almost feels like it takes place, like, in an alternate 1950s, even though there are still things like uh, racism and communism present throughout the movie. It almost feels like it takes place in in some kind of alternate timeline. Oh, Um, for sure. But it's... Yeah, and it's but it's this gorgeous cross between Amelie and Cinema Paradiso and Creature from the Black, Black Lagoon that you can't help but fall in love with. And it's 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 strange for sure. Um, and it might be a little bit off-putting to some people not knowing what to expect and thinking about how weird it is that a human woman, you know, is falling in love with this this fishman, but the movie is full of so much beauty and allure that you can't just you just can't help but like be enamored with it. Well, I think it's going to turn some audiences off because we've seen these stories where a human falls in love with a creature. Like, that's not new. But how far Guillermo del Toro takes that, I think, uh, might make people uncomfortable. But um, let's move on to your number six, and that is Star Wars Last Jedi. Yes. This is a movie that I absolutely loved, even though there are plenty of Star Wars fans who are not happy with the direction that Ryan Johnson took. But it's specifically the decisions that Ryan Johnson made with the characters in this movie, especially the legacy characters from the original trilogy, and how he expands what we know about Star Wars, uh, not just as a franchise, but as a universe that makes me love this movie so much. Um, I I love the decisions he makes with characters like Luke Skywalker and, and General Leia, I love how he expands the idea of what the Force can do and how the Force works. I love what he does with the mystery of Ray's parents that was set up from the first movie. I know that's such a big point of contention right now, but I think that's one of the most important parts of making Ray as a character 
work so well and be so important to the overall direction of the Star Wars franchise. There's so much that I love about this movie. And a lot of the things that I love about this movie are the things that a lot of fans are having trouble accepting. But like I said, I think those decisions are bold and I think they're exactly the kind of things that Star Wars needed in order to continue to thrive and survive. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is a perfect movie because it does drag a bit in the middle and it's got some some pacing issues here and there. It's a little too long. But everything else that I love about this movie overshadows its shortcomings. And I just, I'm so happy with where Star Wars is going now. I definitely admit it's a great film. I just think uh, it makes Force Awakens a worse film. Uh, it actively makes it a worse film, and I think it's uh, we haven't seen episode nine and what that's going to be yet, but I think it's going to actively make that a worse film as well. Um, so that's my worries with that film. But as a film, I think it's great. Um, but let's go on to your number five, and that is The Post. The Post. Another movie that I absolutely love this year, That, but for, uh, for many different reasons than why I've loved most of the rest of the movies from this year. Uh, the Post is a purely important movie in this time that we are currently living. Uh, this is probably my favorite Steven Spielberg movie since Catch Me If You Can. And what I love about this movie is that even though there have been complaints from some people that the movie is a bit on the nose with regards as to what it has to say about the media and its importance in how uh, we operate as a society, and then specifically as, uh, as the United States as a country, I think that that is necessary in a time when so many people are taking such a harsh stance against what uh, this presidency that we currently have to deal with is calling, quote-unquote, fake news. And people seem to forget that without the media, we wouldn't have held the government responsible for so many things that they've done wrong in the past. And the Post specifically explores one of those instances with the Pentagon Papers. And there are very clear parallels drawn between President Richard Nixon and President Donald Trump with regards to how they treat the media, how they try to uh, paint the media in a way that they are not to be trusted, and how he tries to manipulate them and also blackball them, uh, ban them from coverage of White House events, that they're supposed to have access to. There are so many things important in this movie with regards to how we perceive the media today because of how the current administration and our government is treating them that the movie needs to be this blunt. It can't be subtle. The message has to be there, and it puts it out there for everyone to hopefully see and understand. Um, I think that it's every bit as good as Good Night and Good Luck, which um, did things a little bit more subtly, but I said all this movie is nothing but masters at work, whether it's uh, you know Spielberg directing, the performances on screen from Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Bob Odenkirk, um, Bradley Whitford's fantastic in a supporting role. This, there's just so much about this movie that I, I love and think that needs to be highlighted. Oh, the whole ensemble is great, and it's amazing that he put this together in like six or seven months. You yeah, know, that at the beginning of the year, this movie, beginning of 2017, the script was not even in Steven Spielberg's hands is insane. If you know how long it usually takes him or anybody to make a movie. Um, but let's go on to your number four. Call me by your name. Yeah, this was a movie that stuck with me since Sundance Film Festival last year. Um, kind of 
reminded me of just how great the lineup was, at least for me, as far as the films that I saw at Sundance uh, back in 2017 were. This is an incredible um, summer romance. Uh, again, it kind of has this coming-of-age angle that I'm always a sucker for. Uh, it stars uh, Timothy Chalamet as this young teenager who is living in, in Italy with his parents, and there's this doctoral student that comes to live with them to study with his father, and between them sparks this sexy and tense romance. And a lot of it is kind of just enjoying the friendship they have where there's plenty of sexual tension between them. But then, you know, when their relationship finally blossoms, you just, you feel so much relief and like joy for Timothy's character. And it's gorgeously shot. That's some of the best cinematography that we've seen all year. Um, the way that uh, Luca uh, Guadagnino br brings Italy to life in this movie is incredible. It's so vibrant and bright and you, you know, you, you can feel summer radiating from every frame of this movie. Um, and the, the linchpin, though, of this movie is a what is an understated performance from Michael Stuhlbarg that you see why he's in the movie for what seems like a thankless role at the very end. Because I, I won't give away what, what happens or anything like that, but there is this an amazing moment with Michael Stuhlbarg at the end where he gives this monologue to his son, and it is just beautiful, and it will probably make tears come down your face. Um it's just it's it's a gorgeous movie that I that I've loved since January and has stuck with me all year. And on to another film that will certainly make you cry, and that is number three, The Big Sick. Yeah, and not only will this movie make you cry, but for me, what I love most about this movie is how it goes back and forth from making you cry or um, after laughing so hard. Um, there are so many hilarious jokes in this movie be, um, because it's set kind of in the world of stand-up comedy following um, Kumail Nanjiani as a version of himself for the most part. There's some differences, but this movie was written by him and his real-life wife, Emily V. Gordon, telling their real story about how they met, which is this very unique uh, meet-cute that went from them uh, kind of dating but not really dating to being thrown into a weird part of their relationship because she got this strange illness that put her in a medically-induced coma, and then all of a sudden he was meeting her parents and trying to, you know, help them out and make the situation work for a short time while she was, you know, being cured. And the result is this incredibly unique story that is so funny and extremely touching. Uh, there's so much charm. Um, everything about this movie is great. The The script is, is sharp. The jokes are hilarious. Um, the drama feels real. Most romantic comedies feel cheesy they feel fake but all the characters in this movie feel authentic you can tell they were drawn from real life and you know actors like holly hunter and ray romano do a great job of bringing these characters to life and not making them feel like caricatures which is extremely difficult to find in romantic comedies nowadays um so yeah if you if you haven't seen this yet i've ra ranted and raved about it so much on the site over and over again all over the place uh it's on amazon prime so if you haven't seen it you should go watch it right now yeah, I love this film. It was one of my favorites of Sundance. It's going to be one of my favorites of the year. This movie would be a uh, great double feature with 50-50, I think. Um, let's move on to your number two, and that is The Florida Project. Yes, The Florida Project. This is one of the uh, another more recent film that I had seen that I needed to catch up on. 
Uh, I missed it earlier in the year. It didn't really get anywhere close to me theater-wise because some of these smaller movies don't often make it to my neck of the woods without me going out of my way uh, to see them a little drive away. But, man, was I floored by how wonderful this movie is. It is... I've never... It's been a while since I've seen a movie that is so simultaneously hopeful but also heartbreaking. Um, Like, the situation that our main characters are in, uh, a mother named Haley and her young daughter named Mooney, is so dismal and destitute, but there's so much hope and love in every frame still because Mooney, as a character, is so oblivious that this life she's leading is, you know, full of poverty. Like, but she's just so fanciful and free and living her life and... She she is, and that, that's what I, that's what I love about this film is that it's told from the the kid's perspective. So it's not like this depressing, typical kind of slum porn kind of indie drama. It's 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 something different than all that. I think. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, and this I don't know this this might be an unfair comparison, but like um, the movie Precious is one that really digs into. The, the grime of poverty and like and tragedy and that kind of thing and that's still it's still a good movie don't get me wrong but there's something about this movie that it's told differently like it, it's it's not trying to make you sad or depressed or be like man look at how terrible this is but it's this odd combination of where it's uplifting while you're, you still understand that this is not a great situation for these characters to be in um, it's just it's it's such an interesting dichotomy of uh, as far as your perception is, as far as understanding, you know, the bad things that are going on, but that they're making the best of the situation. Um, you just, you fall in love with Mooney so much. Like she's, even when she's being like such a brat, you just love her as a character. The actress that played her, um, that's, wow. Well, what's her name? Brooklyn. Um, Peter, do you know Brooklyn I, Prince? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She is, this is an incredible breakthrough performance. And, yeah, I just I, I love this movie to bits, and I was I was so surprised that after um, having not seen it, how quickly I fell in love with it, and how high that I I was like, yeah, this has to be so so high on my list. And you know, looking at your top five, it's it's uh, it's obvious to me that you know we are watching these films not in a vacuum, but we're watching them you know in a year where there's a lot of. Uh, things going on in politics and a lot of things going uh, on socially and p- politically, you know, uh, like your number one film, I think, is very indicative of that. And that is Get Out. Yeah, this is a movie that came out in February and I've seen it a few times in repeat since then um, because it's been playing playing on cable and I also bought it to, to rewatch it and it has only gotten better as I've continued to watch it just because of how seamlessly it blends such brilliant social commentary with the tropes of the genre of horror. It uses horror tropes in a way that is new and fresh and exciting by combining it with this commentary on racism and the terrible rich white people who perpetuate it. Um, Jordan Peele coming from comedy. This is such an incredible directorial debut for him that I can't wait to see what else his career holds for the future because there's so much promise here. The way he visualizes everything and just the tone that he sets uh, and 
the performances that he's pulled from from these people too. It's just it feels like it exists in another world in one way, but it's also it still hits so true to like the things that we see every day when it comes to racism among people. And it this you know it's just a kind of movie that is entertaining on one level, but has so much to say. And there's layers to what he's trying to say too. One of my favorite things about this movie is, um, and again, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Get Out, again, you, you've had so much time now. Um, when Chris, the main character, after he is, um, it's attempted to uh, hypnotize him and they're going to remove part of his brain and replace it with the brain of uh, Stephen Root's character. When he escapes, he incapacitates the, the family that is trying to hold him captive and do this uh, procedure with two of the whitest things imaginable, a bocce ball and a deer head. <laughs> and I just, and I just love, love that Jordan Peele has taken those elements and turned them against like the people who love them so much. Cause those are two like just symbols of, you know, upper class white society, you know, like the, the kinds of things they oh, yeah. do in, and there's, New England there, town. there's a lot of that in that whole entire movie, like the, how he uses the cotton to out uh, smart them. Yeah. HT pointed exactly. that out. Yeah, um, it, it, it does reward uh, multiple watches. Um, you have a lot more to say about all these movies in your article here on SlashFilm.com. I'll link it in the show notes and you can go to SlashFilm.com and find it there. Um you also have some other honorable mentions and movies to note that you haven't seen. If, if you want to read Brad's article, uh, you know, go to slashfilm.com and look for Ethan and e- Ethan Anderson's top 10 movies of 2017. Brad, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Uh, I'm writing at the slashfilm.com fairly frequently now. Um, back in the swing of things. And I also have a podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, that's available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Uh, Coming up soon, we're actually doing a special kind of like side episode where all we're going to do is talk about Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, I've had a couple of friends who... (laughs) Aren't we tired of talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi at this point? Oh, God, no. I won't get tired of this for a while. And specifically, I have two friends who have been very adamantly upset and against some of the things that happen in the movie. Um, and so myself and one, uh, one of my other friends who are for it and love the movie are going to have a conversation, not like an arguing, yelling debate, but like a real conversation kind of trying to dig into it and, and talk about that. So uh, we'll be recording that today, uh, Thursday, which is when we're recording this right now, January yeah. 4th. And so that should be out sometime in the near future. Well, very cool. Uh, you can find more of me at Slash Film on Twitter, SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can find all the stories we mentioned today on uh, in the show notes or on SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast. We even publish it on YouTube. Um, please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, spread the word. Tell your friends. If you have a question, concern, comment, criticism, please email us. Peter at SlashFilm.com, and please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And we will see you tomorrow.